Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. I wanted to take a minute and provide some context into what are geodes before you listen to this amazing podcast with Lorraine Griffith and Emily Dula, two integral ladies in getting geodes up and running and off the ground for great minds. So geodes are accessible, knowledge-building books designed to engage emerging and developing readers. They were created in a response to the need for authentic books so that young readers can practice their decoding skills while learning rich content about important ideas in science, history, and the arts. You're going to love hearing their specific examples as they dive into each text and tell us a little bit about how the books address science, history, and the arts. Geodes are the bridge between wit and wisdom, our core instruction, and a systematic foundational skills reading program. So it really helps students to practice those decoding skills that they're learning in their systematic phonics program, but it also builds the content-rich knowledge that we know they need in order to access texts in wit and wisdom, core instruction. I wanted to tell a story about how engaging these texts are for my own little one, who is seven years old. She just finished first grade, and I had a few of the books laying around and introduced them to her. She was so excited to read them that she wanted to read them all on her own. She read every single one, and then she wanted to go to the library to get them because She was so enthralled with them. So as she was reading them, she was laughing out loud. She was admiring the artwork, admiring the pictures, really pointing to the photographs. And she was even able in some of the texts to read the more section, which you'll hear about in our podcast today, which is on a fifth and sixth grade level, uh, reading level. And she was so pumped because she had all of this knowledge about the topic to read the more section or to at least try it and to explain to me what it was saying in that section, especially the one on Thorny Devil. That was her absolute favorite. So I think you're going to really enjoy this podcast today. Melissa and I had a wonderful time recording it with these ladies. So thank you so much for listening. And we hope that this provides a bit of context into geodes so that you know exactly what you are listening to and what the gals are going to explain today. Welcome to the podcast today. Melissa and I are so excited, really excited, like more so than usual to have (laughs) Lorraine Griffith and Emily Gula from Great Mind with us because they are going to share so much information about geodes. Your mind is going to be blown. We're going to be exploring geodes, the what, the why, the how, and they're going to tell us about all the things relating to geodes. So I'd love for them to introduce themselves so that you can get to know them, and then we'll dive into geodes and how it came to be. So, Lorraine, would you share a little bit of background information about yourself? Sure. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I'm a retired teacher. I spent um, some years in the in the music classroom. That's a little known fact about me. <laughs> I taught music first, and I wasn't very good at that. And then I found my calling when I went to an elementary school as a substitute to make a little money on the side and fell in love with elementary education. Um, and I did that for 27 years and ended up retiring three years ago to come on full-time with Great Minds. Um, I've always been passionate about knowledge in the classroom. That has been since 1993, <laughs> oh. that has been my passion about um, about what I could do in the classroom to help students to have deep knowledge about the world. I love that. What, You're ahead of your time. You were. <laughs> <laughs> Lorraine, would you mind sharing what grades you taught? Sure. I taught five years in kindergarten. That was when I first started getting into the knowledge thing. Um, then I taught about nine years in fourth grade, 
a whole lot of years in fifth grade. I lost count of that one. <laughs> then I ended up teaching all the students in K-4 when the first, when the Common Core Standards first came out, I did something called a literacy lab uh-huh. for two years where the kids came to me with their teacher as a pullout once a week. Oh. And I taught, I think I had 630 kids a week <laughs> that I taught English language arts. And then I went to a remedial reading room and sat at a kidney table for three years oh with um, a Title I position. And that's how I ended when I retired. Wow. Oh my gosh. Well, that's, that's quite a variety. So I'm oh sure yeah. All the teachers listening can relate to that, like something changing here and there in their career. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Emily, tell us about you. Yeah. Well, I don't have 600 kids a week. I don't think I can beat Lorraine on that. Lorraine, that's very impressive. Um, I started uh, teaching in New Orleans public schools, and I started in fourth grade and then moved down to first grade in kindergarten, spent the most time in kindergarten, and then I did literacy coaching and reading intervention in New Orleans, so I was about there for 10 years in the public schools there, and then I moved on to Great Minds, and I was the first grade content lead for the Wit and Wisdom curriculum, and now I'm the Geodes Teacher Resource Editor for the Geodes Project. Awesome. And fun fact, Emily and I actually started our teaching careers together in New Orleans in 2003. Familiar face. Oh my gosh. It's a small world. Small world. That is so great. I'm so glad you know each other. Wit and Wisdom brought us back together. Exactly. Right? I feel like Wit and Wisdom brings everyone together. We're We're all always learning together. Absolutely. I love that. Um. Great. So now that we know about each of you, would you mind just diving into geodes and telling us um, just how they came to be? Like, what is the research? Tell us all the things about what got us to this point of launching geodes, how they were developed, um, illustrators, authors, who wrote them? We just can't wait to hear everything that you have to share about all the background on this incredible um, text selection. Okay, well, I'll start with, like, I'm going to just take you back to my kidney table. (laughs) table. I'm sure we can relate. (laughs) Yes. And sitting there with four or five students, all struggling with reading and digging in for the book that I'm supposed to use. The book is very loosely connected to a phonics idea, sometimes not even being able to find that phonics piece in the book. So there was that issue. Yep. But then every single time I introduced a new book to the students, it was a different topic. So it never felt like the students were anxious to read the next book. It was just like, oh, what, what's this one about? (laughs) Oh, it's about that dog. (laughs) Like it it would just be, it wasn't, they weren't things that would get students excited about knowledge. Um, and then like, so I had that frustration because I had this passion for knowledge ever since I had read cultural literacy, um, Hirsch's book from the late eighties, I just felt like what students in my rural community really needed was to have strong background knowledge when they came to a text, but it just felt like that was irrelevant at the kidney table. But I had spent all those years in a regular classroom feeling like, you know, as much we worked really hard to build content knowledge. So students had more equity with their background knowledge. And of all the places that we needed students to have it, it was at that in small group instruction. Yeah. So that for me was what my personal passion was with this. Um, and when we started this project, we had just finished with wisdom. And so we kind of like, we sent the very last things off in the, in December of 2016, sent, you know, our teacher editions to the printer, the student editions to the printer. And in January, we met in New Orleans for a retreat and invited um, a teacher who is very passionate about foundational skills instruction and teaching foundations, which is uh, Wilson's tier one product for uh, foundational skills. Mm -hmm. And we asked her to come and just bring 
samples of all the books she uses with her students. Mm -hmm. And she laid them all around the table from all different publishers. She, she had been teaching for a long time. And we read lots of the books. We talked about a lot of the books. And I will never forget, like, sitting there and kind of looking at each other and saying, okay, so what it looks like from these books is that decodability is so limiting Yep, that all publishers have ever done in the past is to do these, they, they try to make sense and some <laughs> publishers have gotten better with it, right. but it just felt like it was like this random, um, pile of tech that were teaching what students needed to have. They desperately needed to practice those phonics because Marilyn Adams says, yep. you know, they only learn that phonics is worth learning if they actually use it in text. Yep. And we knew they weren't doing that in level text. So for them to be using it in, we wanted them to be able to use it in decodable text, but were our only options, those kinds of books. Yeah. So we turned to each other and just basically said, you know, if we can't disrupt the market with what we're creating, let's just not do this. Like either we disrupt in a really positive way yeah. or we don't even do mm -hmm. it. Is it possible that students could actually um, learn to read while at the same time they're reading to learn? Like, it, can we do that together? And that was really the question that we walked away from NOLA with, with that challenge of saying, you know, if we're going to do this, we have to do it differently. Yeah. That makes so much sense. I'm, I'm a middle school teacher by trade. So this, you know, that world is a little foreign to me, but I remember helping to type up some of the decodable texts that we had here in Baltimore city. And I remember turning to our elementary specialist and just saying, what are these stories? Like, what, like these don't even make sense. Like what are our students reading? Yeah. Um, so you, I think you told me that too, Melissa. You, I have to tell you, I was typing up these books and that was my light bulb moment. Book. Yeah. <laughs> these don't even make sense. They're just, you know, rhyming words and have the same sounds. But yeah, I had that same realization. Yeah. Absolutely. Like the students roll down the hill, roll, roll, roll. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just really glad that you guys not only recognized it, but then like said, we have to do something about it. Yeah. We definitely, this is Emily. We definitely thought about that a lot and thought our beginning readers deserve more. And why, yeah. why shouldn't they have those books that make sense? I mean, that shouldn't be the lowest bar. I mean, do we have a higher bar than that? That just basically right. want. <laughs> We want the illustrations. We want them to love reading these books. And we also thought, I guess, more globally, thinking about NAEP scores and other things throughout the country that, you know, our scores haven't been growing. We haven't seen the growth. And this is not to be a blame game, because that's not going to get us anywhere. You know, what, what can we do to try to some, something's not working here? You know, so why can't yeah. we let's try to change it? And this is one way that we might be able to do that. So that was behind our thinking, too. That's amazing. So can you tell us about... Um, who who wrote these books? Um, authors, illustrators? Did you pull from all over the country? What what happened? How did you decide your next step? So, like, you decided that you want to disrupt the market. Which kudos to you. I'm I think that that's incredible that you're wanting to just disrupt in a positive way, right? And do what's right by kids and um, support teachers and accessing this content knowledge as well as the um, word study skills, the, the systematic phonics that they need um, in a way that's really meaningful. So what happened after that? You decided and then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> really interesting. If you know great minds at all, you know that um, there is no hill we're not willing to climb. And so we were given a certain time period that we were supposed to complete these books in. So our goal was to create 176 books in 39 months. Wow. Um, <laughs> and I will never forget, like, we had a retreat in <laughs> August, and we were going back to start September 1st. And um, I went home and told my husband, who has known publishing for quite a few years, I went home and told my husband, I said, so we're going to do the 64 first grade books within one year they're going to be at the printers. 
And he just looked at me and said, that's impossible. <laughs> um, of course, in his most supportive voice. And we did it in 364 days. Wow. So I, we got them to the publisher, which was absolutely amazing. But this is how we did it, which is, it's just crazy because every single book has 67 milestones. So when you talk about like, you have to come up with the concept of the book, um, you have to think about like, what is the, where is this book in the scope and sequence of what the child actually knows phonetically? What trick words does the child know? And we correlated, we collaborated very closely with Wilson with um, the scope and sequence that matched um, foundations. So we had that part, but then we had rough draft and then first round and then second round and then third round. And then we had, <laughs> so there was a lot of process and that was, that was before it went to design. And then with design, you have to look at sketches. Um, we have an ACE accuracy expert, Trish Schuster, who um, is very, very careful to make sure that everything that gets out there is something that does not have to be later untaught when the students get older. So um, we have lots of examples of that work with um, accuracy. But we ended up um, putting a call for authors, and every author did a blind audition, whether they worked at Great Minds, whether they had published books with Scholastic in the past, whether they had done... Um, like had a long history of writing these kinds of books or had never written a book in their life. They um, all handed in blind auditions. Mm -hmm. We ended up with a total of 36 authors by the time we were finished. Um, we have 11 editors that would work with each one of those um, authors. We ended up with eight designers, uh, four photographers and 28 illustrators from all over the world. We actually had some from Colombia, Italy, Argentina, Spain, all over wow. the U.S. Um, yeah, yeah. So it ended up being a mammoth uh, coordination of people, but the product, we're just so thrilled because at first, you know, our advice to us, they were things like, well, just do a template, you know, right? and just plug in graphic art. And our creative designer, Whitney Lyle, would have nothing to do with that and um, really wanted every book to be more like a trade book that a child would look at it and say, oh, I love the way this illustrator illustrates because I remember, you know, and start recognizing that because the illustrator is good enough in their own right mm -hmm. to um, have fans. So we're hoping that some of these illustrators really rise to the top with their other texts because some of them are pretty well-established illustrators. Um, we have an author, Joe Bruchak, who is quite well-known for his work with Native American um, tales and lots of other writing too, but he ended up writing a book for us in second grade. Um, people just jumped at the opportunity to write on these wonderful topics. That's exciting. And I was, yeah. was going to say too, they're, they're gorgeous. First of oh all, my God. <laughs> I mean, just looking at them, they, you want to pick them up and look at them, but it is really neat that, um, and something I didn't think about before, but now that you're saying it, I noticed is they're all different, you know, and they don't feel like just repetitive and the same. They look different. The stories sound different. So having that variety in authors and illustrators really shows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that our, the president of our organization, Lynn Munson, is very uh, committed to having art integrated through all of our books. So when the students finish the K-2 set of texts, um, they will have learned about Durer, Mondrian, Van Gogh, Malay, Surratt, uh, Berestat, and lots more um, artists. So there's also that whole element that runs through it that you see in once at least in every 16 books, we have a featured piece of art and the, and the artist uh, that, that created that work. So there's also that facet that goes with it aside from all the other knowledge building. That's a knowledge strand that runs through all of our work. And you'll notice that that correlates to wit and wisdom. Yes, that's incredible. I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm holding in front of me, not to interject, but I'm sitting here and holding in front of me. I have, um, Cinderella by Rachel Hilton and Christopher Sear. I think I'm saying 
his name correctly, his last name. Yes. Uh, yes. And I'm holding Thorny Devil by Maria Myers. And I just just want to point out to those who are listening who can't see these these texts, Cinderella is just, I read it this morning, or well, I'm sorry, I didn't read it. My seven-year-old read it this morning. <laughs> um, and it just, she, her, the, the wonder on her face, looking at the picture, she actually stopped halfway through the book and she said, this is so pretty to look at mom. Like, it's just beautiful. And I was like, it is, isn't it? It's so pretty. And then, then we were, then she was reading Thorny Devil and just his, hysterical laughing because this one you know thorny devil is is um you know telling about the this type of lizard uh and it in the desert and just the photographs are insane like they are just up close in this face of (laughs) this animal that's crazy looking and just hysterical um and it's just they're just so engaging and i think that's the point that i want to make right here is that what you did to build this product is not just a, a product. This is really that Marcus market disruptor that you mentioned earlier because of how all of the elements came together. Um, so I guess my question is like, what, in your opinion, like what makes geodes different and is there anything else on the market right now? And I would say Lorraine or Emily, uh, it's up for grabs. So whoever feels like <laughs> feels like answering one of the, you can split the difference if you'd like to take one and one. Go ahead, okay. Emily. I, I guess there's um, not that we know of right now. I mean, I think a big difference that we thought of when making these that we there tended to be understand that in grades K one and two you were learning to read and the text were reflective of kind of being basic in that way and then maybe they got more interesting in third grade and on because then you were reading to learn and we want to combine those sooner there's a lot of research out there by Paris um, about different skills and people you know the importance of skills and knowledge and we thought let's bring those together so I think rather than waiting wait till students get to third grade then you can teach them the, about the printing press no let's do that now in first grade why not you know, wow. a lot of that was the why not versus that hasn't been done why not let's let's try it we think kids can do it we know kids love knowledge we know teachers love teaching that and seeing kids excited so i think that was a big difference in what you know make our books different thus far and i think we've seen it like I, you guys uh on your podcast interviewed uh, mandy and Amy from Mad River, and we were, Lorraine and I and another colleague, Michelle, were fortunate to be able to visit classrooms there, and mm-hmm. it was just wonderful for us to see books in kids' hands, and I know we were in classrooms when, were there other books available, and teachers said, you know, the kids, I have other books in my library, but the geos are the ones they read all the time, and we've walked in, mm-hmm. you know, during the center time or whatever it happened to be, they were reading the geos. You know, they read them with the teacher, went back to their seat, and were reading them again. And so I think mm-hmm. what makes them different too is that it's not just I'm at the kidney table reading them and then I go back to my seat and I'm doing something else. Like they want to continue reading them and they're just so excited about them. So at that same visit where Emily and I were there, there was a scene where um, they, in Wit Wisdom, in the very first module, they learn about the joy of books, the world of books. In the second module, they learn creature features, which are animals. And in the third module, they learn about the wind. Now, you might think to yourself, how do you do six for five and six-year-olds, seven-year-olds on the wind? And it's interesting because we did four on the force of the wind. Then we did four on the energy that wind creates. And then we did four on windmills and closed it with wind-oriented storms. So come with me to this scene around (laughs) the kidney table. And there was a boy. There were a lot of children in this group. And there was a boy that was in and out of the conversation. We all all know those kids. And um, he was under the table during parts of the conversation that the teacher was having with this new Mm -hmm. book called The Dust Bowl. And so it's the next to the last book of the set of 16. And he had already obviously accrued quite a bit of knowledge. So she's introducing this book and she's saying, you know, like this was a period of history where the dust was like swirling around because of the wind. And he pops up from under the table and he says, 
the wind is a powerful force. <laughs> then he goes back under the table. Well, that's <laughs> there's a book called In Motion, and it talks about how the wind wow. is a powerful force. And then that whole idea keeps going through all four of those texts. So then the teacher keeps going and she says, you know, like when the dust whirled around, it caused a lot of damage and the children are all sharing things that they had, you know, noticed in their first read of this dust bowl book. And the boy pops up again and he says, that is just like the towers of Nahuatl. (laughs) And then he turned around and he said, I can't believe I even know that. And then he went back under the table. And to me, it's like, when was the last time you were at a kidney table where kids were practicing their phonics skills and that there was that kind of dynamic of instruction where he's talking about a scientific idea about the wind being a powerful force tied to these ancient thousand-year-old towers (laughs) in Iran that were built and then given a second usage as a windmill that protects a village from all of the power of the wind that could destroy the village. So to me, it was like that was such a culminating moment of knowing that those students had been working on specific phonic skills during that period of time and reviewing the whole way through. But the children weren't necessarily noticing that. They were excited about the knowledge. Right. That's so amazing. (laughs) And you also had me thinking too, like not even just that moment in that classroom, but when you brought up the Dust Bowl, my mind immediately went to the sixth grade module um, about the Great Depression and how, you know, a lot of teachers I think might say, well, they won't understand out of the dust because they don't know anything about the Dust Bowl. But here you've just just perfectly described, (laughs) you know, we have our second graders who are deep in this content and what Will that, you know, those students, when they get to sixth grade, they will have so much to bring to that text. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. Um, So I have a question from, again, my middle school brain. (laughs) So um, this might be obvious to all of you, but um, I completely am on board with the content and it makes 100% sense to me. Like, why not build this content earlier for students? I have a question around the, like, I think these are 80% decodable for students, correct? Well, they're 80% decodable as aligned to a specific scope and sequence. We have to be careful in the way that we say decodable. So, yeah, based upon what skills the students have at any given point, because Something that's 80% decodable in like maybe October Mm -hmm. of their first grade year could end up being 90 to 95% decodable at the end of first grade because they have so many more skills. But yes, when we really encourage teachers to line them up with what they have actually actively taught um, to make sure that they're not like just tossing the books in as decodable text because they're not decodable unless they've had that. That makes sense. So in the actual classroom, um, yes, I I know that you guys don't have like an exact, this is how to use geodes. um, But I'm just wondering like what, what this might look various ways, right? It might not be that um, it might not line up exactly with where you are in wit and wisdom because you're also taking where they are in Wilson foundations into consideration like how does it actually play out in the classroom how you use the geodes i can start in on that this is emily again i think uh, we want them to use flexibly in the sense of like small group over but i think to get to your question about you know what should they line up with we recommend that they line up with the phonics scope and sequence that you know, increases the accessibility for students and the key point of geodes is also that they're applying their phonics skills that they've learned so if they haven't learned you know, our controlled vows yet that those books come later on. So we wouldn't want, you know, the teachers to necessarily skip ahead to those. Like we've thought about the sequence of knowledge build and, uh, but we've also aligned them to the sequence of the phonics instruction as well. So I think we've seen them, like I alluded to before with some teachers do some parts whole group that maybe they'll do a vocab intro to the whole, group, <laughs> you know, have some save some time in small group and then they uh, pull groups for small group. And another thing that people might not realize with geos is the idea that we want students using the same text in, in the various groups. The idea that you differentiate the, um, 
the instruction, but you're not doing different types of text for different groups. I think we had a, we heard a speecher on Twitter, you know, Tim Shanahan was just talking about that. And I think that really uh, was, we felt that as well with the geos that I think when I was in at the kidney table myself, I would do different levels of text for different students, which means different levels yeah. for everybody, different texts for everybody. And that meant one group, unfortunately, tended to be the A group, the B group, you know, with those levels, they were reading the leaf is green, the leaf is red, the leaf is brown, you know, versus yeah. level E, level F, they were reading whole different things. And we, you know, we didn't have, we weren't building any type of shared knowledge and, you know, the equity there of knowledge building wasn't the same either. So I think um, in terms of geos, the idea that a teacher is doing the Dust Bowl with all our students and, and he or she is, you know, adapting that lesson for the needs of the students, but everybody is reading about the Dust Bowl in some way. Yep. So, and I just, would you mind giving us an example and I will kind of um, prompt you for it. Like, for example, if I'm uh, a teacher in the classroom and I'm um, using one of these texts, how would I make it accessible for all of my students? Sure. Yeah. I think you look at one, what this, you know, having the data, knowing what your students' needs are and knowing, you know, what they need to work on. So I think you think about what's the entry point you can give to them. So I think you would, one, on the volume of text that they're reading, you know, some students may be able to read that whole book on their own. Some students may read three to four pages on their own and the rest of the text they're doing a choral read or maybe echo read with the teacher. And some students may really be focusing in on one to two pages of that, you know, that the teacher has selected because it is like, has a lot, you know, um, for the percentage of words that needs to be worked on or they, the day before and they really got it down so they want to do those two pages or three pages again to add on to what they've learned so i think you're um varying the amount of text that's read you know and that will change over a course of a couple days you know as you're reading that book so i think that's one way the way students are reading the text itself if it's completely independently or if it's a buddy read with a partner i think you can vary that as well so does that help give a better picture yes absolutely i just think teachers really need to be able to conceptualize it and the more that we can make it um you know really relevant for them and and put it in in words and and terms that they can use when they grab the geodes in their classroom and like remember emily's words in our podcast you know oh she said that it would be helpful to consider their entry point and think about what they know and how we can differentiate. Maybe it's a buddy read. Because I think um, from talking with teachers, sometimes they feel like they're doing things wrong. And, you know, it, that's, I think, a misconception. If they're utilizing these texts in ways that are appropriate for their students um, in small groups and, and as the bridge between um, wit and wisdom core instruction and that systematic phonics approach. So, and foundations or, um, another program, I know particularly we're aligned with foundation, but, um, you know, I just, I think that we need to empower teachers to, to do those things that we, they know are best and, and we can give them the tools to support that. So thank you. I appreciate that. Right. Lori, and I want to add on, I know uh, Lorraine and I have talked a lot. I think it was maybe an article by Pimentel, and I think there was a second author that I can't remember right now, but he talked a lot about how sometimes teachers are giving away their diagnostic abilities when there's so many computerized tests, you know, or screenings. And I, I totally agree. We agree that teachers, we trust teachers to make the right decisions for their students, and we honor their knowledge and skills to be able to do so. So I think we want to highlight that as well, that when you're sitting at the kidney table day after day with those students, you know them, and you're you know, writing your observational notes down, you're knowing, you know, seeing what errors are being made and you're going to address those. So yeah, yeah I, I, we want teachers to trust themselves because we definitely trust their abilities to um, reach their students. Yep. Agree. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm just really glad you guys brought that up because I, I think even when you all did an introduction for geodes here in Baltimore, I already heard a couple people kind of talking about using geodes in a way that looks a little more like a guided reading using level text and like even saying something like, well, we'll need the kindergarten ones because some of our students will be behind. Um, so I'm really glad Emily brought up that idea of we're all trying to access the same text and you differentiate how yeah. to get students there. Well, one of the things I would add to that, that there may be situations because I've, I've worked with quite a few different schools now, and there are some schools that may feel like they instruct differently like if but th this is what our issue is if teachers 
no matter what phonics curriculum they're using, if they're teaching all of their students that phonics concept, but then they put them into different mm-hmm. texts, all the students are then not practicing yeah. that phonics mm-hmm. concept. So we're actually working against ourselves um, by doing that. And there could be situations where, you know, a student really needs more work with something else according to um, the foundational program, because we would always default mm-hmm. to that as far yep. as what a student needs. They're the experts in phonics, you know, acquisition. But it, it, as a general rule, if the phonics program is being taught to the whole class, then the whole class, each member needs to practice the concept that's being taught, or they're just getting farther and farther. Yes. yes. <laughs> do we, do you, can you off the top of your head, and if you can't, that is A-OK. I will find something to put in the notes of this podcast. But do, <laughs> do you know the stats for how many times a, a, a child needs to interact with a word or um, that skill in order to put it in their long-term memory bucket? I would say it, it varies. I think research shown like yeah. it can vary by vocabulary. I think it also kind of varies. A, a student that I think teachers kind of call it like the light bulb went off, which I think we, um, if you read, for those teachers out there, if you haven't read David Kilpatrick, I'd highly recommend his work and the work of the reading lead to kind of get the background on that. But the idea of orthographic mapping is that students, um, when they, they're able to kind of absorb things so much faster. Say like initially if a student's working on the word cat mm-hmm. and they have to find out at, that's a lot of effort. Just remember what the sound C, A, and T makes. But a student that has kind of in a sense memorized or their brain has now sees cat and doesn't have to sound out each individual word. They can just see cat and read it as cat. Mm-hmm. Those students are then able, they have more room, you know, if you think about their working memory, what's going on in their brain, they're then able to, if they can read the cat sat on the mat without sounding each one out, then they would probably be able to read, you know, meow more easily than say a student that's still working on cat. So I think it varies a lot on, and the content knowledge varies, you know, a little bit too. If they, if students already know all about cats, then they're probably going to be able to read the word cat um, faster too. So I think there's a lot of variables there and it would be great if we had one answer for that but from yeah. what we've seen it, it's very variable that's that's a such a good point and i'm so glad that you brought that up um and can you can you can you just share the the article or the folks that you mentioned again i know you said the reading league and david was it fitzpatrick Kilpatrick. Uh, Kilpatrick. Oh, okay yeah we you know read some of his uh work and it, it's helpful just to go through the stages and understand, you know, what's happening in kids' brains, because that's, that's hard to understand a lot of the time as a teacher and, and knowing kind of the background of what's happening, I think, yeah, uh, makes it easier to see it and plan and it's targeted instruction. Yes. And, and we'll link those in the, the show notes. Um, but that's a good point that it's so dependent on multiple factors. I mean, I think that's, that's such a key point. Cause I think sometimes we want an, an answer, right? Like if a student encounters mm-hmm. this, this word or concept 10 times, they'll put it in their long-term memory bucket, but that's not always the case. And most likely that's not the case because there's so many other factors, like you mentioned, like background knowledge and content knowledge, like all this stuff that contributes to that. So thank you for, for giving like a real honest answer and providing that research to support that. Sure. Awesome. Melissa, did you want to, did you want to shift gears to an- another question? <laughs> Um, oh, put me on the spot. I, oh, no, ready. it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was, you, I, M- Melissa always pulls through. I, like, I, am, I do almost have one in my head. I didn't at you the have moment. Like, <laughs> Melissa is like my inc- incredible question asker friend. So I'm so glad that we do this together. Um, so I guess we could ask um, Lorraine or Emily, do you have anything like that you want to share um, that we have not asked or anything that you feel like would be really important for teachers or leaders listening to this podcast to know about geodes. <laughs> Good yeah, that was <laughs> Go we'll get specific. <laughs> so I would just, um, I would like to highlight some of the features of the books maybe that one of the things that 
you know, it's interesting because when you're doing these texts, you think, okay, we need a story and we need illustrations. But at some point in the process of creating the very first one, which was Library Cat, um, about the Library of Alexandria and cats keeping the scrolls Aww. there safe um, <laughs> by eating the bugs, that in that first book, the book was pretty much like we had the idea of it. We had the idea of the illustrations. And then we had this sense, there's so much more to tell about this that you can't communicate with so few words. And we came up with the idea of having an adult read passage at the end of the geode that Mm. is called the more. And in that passage, it goes into, most of the time, it goes into a relevant detail that maybe is mentioned in the text, but we simply didn't have the words to explain it. And it has been overwhelming to see student responses to that. We had we were in first grade classrooms, and when they realized that Emily, um, the hero on the call with us, <laughs> had been in charge of, of writing and editing many of those, she has a team, but she had been primarily in charge of that of those getting finished they clapped for her and some of the kids wanted her to sign the books we had (laughs) some we had students that were first graders that were reading the moors because they loved the knowledge so much and emily aren't they written on like a five six level fifth grade yeah we consider the readability yep yeah yeah and so that so the teachers were saying you know we thought that these books we're going to be mainly of interest to, you know, struggling mm-hmm. readers. They're phonetically correlated texts. So, of course, you know, our high readers, they're not for them. But their higher readers were so fascinated by the accumulation of knowledge that um, they, had, they had a real appeal. And those beautiful more sections at the end are what really deepen the knowledge. So even though there are 64 first grade texts, there are actually 128 because the adult read aloud text um, is so powerful to add to the knowledge aside from what we could put in captions. Mm-hmm. Um, the captions are not necessarily decodable. Some of them are almost, but they're not intended to be read by the students. And that way we could pack in a little bit more knowledge. Um, and then as, as a really beautiful aside, when schools get, the black and white copies, which are take-home copies, there will be a Spanish translation of those more sections. So if the take-home copy goes to um, a home whose first language is Spanish, then the adult can still feel part of that knowledge building by reading aloud in Spanish. So we're really excited about um, those features of our text. And then also in Inside Geodes, which is the teacher resource that um, Emily leads the creation of, it also has what we like to say is everything we ever wanted at the yeah. kidney table because it has all the words listed. Like, who doesn't want all the words and it, that, that are in the text? It has a summary of the text in case your group changes. Like, let's say that you're at a kidney table like me, that I would have you know, five or six groups in a day, sometimes 10 groups in a day that you kind of forget, okay, what book am I using with this grade level? And you have a summary of the text for the, for the teacher. You have comprehension questions, both general and specific. Um, and then probably my very favorite feature is the image discussion guide because a lot of the knowledge that's embedded in those illustrations or photographs can be an invisible feature to a teacher that's accustomed to a student reading a text, glancing at the illustration, reading the text, glancing at the illustration, but to see the depth of knowledge that's in the illustration and the accuracy, um, that is also really interesting. Because even Library Cat, when we first did that book, you would think, okay, it's a library, it has a cat in it, The cat protects the books. 
oh my gosh, there was so much accuracy to deal with mm. because were there really books? <laughs> and when the research was done, there were no books. Oh. They were all scrolls. So we had to change the whole idea to scrolls. And then can we bring the word scroll oh. in when mm. we really want the students to learn the word book? So can we put the word scroll into the text? And then the, one of the things that we, we still laugh about is how long it took our illustrator and um, our accuracy specialist and the president of our organization to agree on the type oh. of column that was featured on the cover <laughs> of the text because it had to be accurate with the historical times. But to this day, when we look at a column, we um, look to see if it matches the column that's in Library Cat. But that, that was, and, and to make that even more complicated, the artist that did that, um, Neil Brigham, he carves his work. So he had to go oh, back wow. and redraw and recarve. Um, they were lino prints. Oh my to, goodness. Um, get that illustration exactly right. Yes. So that the, the image discussion guide is just such a great characteristic. I mean, such a great feature because it shows the depth to which um, research was done by yeah. our illustrators to make sure that what was put in there, you know, we could stand behind and not have to reach yeah. someday. So I think that's interesting. And then, um, like when you think about the topic, just such mm -hmm. a wide range, but the beauty of it is that they're not just scattered, you know, random topics of interesting things. They're always connected to each other in groups mm -hmm. of four. And then those four are connected in groups of 16. So you know, when you walk away from it, you know that students have accrued knowledge um, and it isn't just, you know, some random idea that we decided to throw into a book. So, um, yeah, and really world knowledge. Like in K2, kids visit over 33 wow. countries and they, um, they just experience so much from, you know, I didn't know that Bangkok had floating markets. <laughs> or that red kangaroos sat on their tails when they fought for balance, or that there's a mosque in Mali, West Africa, that is budded once a year as a community celebration. <laughs> like all yeah. of these things that are really beautiful parts of culture all over the world that our students are going to get to read about those and learn about different continents and countries and artists. It's, um, we've just learned so much. We say that all the time, Emily. Our whole team, like, we'll say we cannot believe how much we learned. So you're building your own content knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, think, I mean, yeah. students and teachers love that from those that we've talked to, you know, the joy of learning and being able to share that knowledge with others. I mean, I think a lot of, I know myself as a teacher, I love that moment in the classroom and to have that repeatedly. But even beyond that, it's the joy and of students have when they read that themselves and they can say, I read about that windmill. And I can tell you about it now. So I think it's that combination of being excited about learning something new that they can share, but also the fact that they read about it themselves just brings it to another level. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> there's so much. Like, do I just I just feel there, like there's so much joy and like curiosity and it just it just cultivates that like their positive habits of mind to like continue to want to learn more and seek more. And I know that you had mentioned Lorraine, there's four, you had said there's four texts and then they're connected to a greater 16 texts. Could you just flesh that out a little bit more for those listening who don't know the scope and sequence? Would you mind um, being a little more specific? Sure. Sure. I'll just go back to the wind one that I talked about before when I talked about the boy with the towers right. of Nashtafan. So um, that, module is actually called Powerful Forces in Wit and Wisdom. So we haven't really talked so much these books being a bridge between foundational skills, um, specifically the foundations, tier one um, phonics spelling program over into the Wit and Wisdom topic. So these are like a bridge between the two. So in the Powerful Wisdom module, students are reading um, books that orient around the wind, like Brave Irene, um, 
What are the other ones? Oh, there was the owl. Uh, like, what is the wind? The owl story. I can't remember. It's, uh, oh, yeah. Owl yeah, at owl home. at home, where the yes. wind is personified, you yes. know, as a guest. And there are, there are so many great stories that um, feature the wind or the actual knowledge of the wind. So what we did was we looked at, okay, we need 16 books on the wind. And when we started, this is really interesting. When we started with the first draft of titles, it's the only one I remember that we went, when we went into um, senior team discussion about whether we were going the right direction, the response was, you know, these 16 are really kind of repetitive Mm -hmm. and boring. We're going to have to go back and rethink them. And when the concept development team got back together, they found the most fascinating things. And one of the things we haven't really talked about is also the genre spread. Yeah. We have, we have literary informational text and literary nonfiction, but even within our literary text, we have poetry and prose so that it's not that students pick it up and it feels like Mm -hmm. they're reading a formula. So when you look at the first set of four books, it's all about wind and earth and it introduces the wind as a powerful force. But we have, you know, a book about the way the wind scatters seed. We have a book about, you know, base, a very basic book on the wind and how wind um, causes things to go into motion, that wind is a motion. We have crafted by the wind, which is actually, um, an informational text about yardings. You may not have even known what yardings are. <laughs> I don't. You might want to look this up. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> and then, and then it has a folk, um, a folk tale called a growing wind that talks about um, how a tree grows in the wind, and that trees grow stronger when the wind, um, when they're in the, in um, the path of the wind. And then we go into another set, which is blown away, which is like the Wright brothers, mm-hmm. a Viking story, um, kites that are used in different parts of the world um, for an actual celebratory purpose. And then we have Catching the Wind, which that's where the Towers of Nashtafan were in there. We have an illustration. I mean, sorry, a, um, a literary piece um, about a fire that happens at a, at a mill in the Netherlands. We of the um of that of Mondrian with not a story we have an informational text about Mondrian who actually painted windmills but we look at another yeah. piece of his work and then we go into the mighty wind which talks about how we even have a wind scale and it teaches about the wind scale this is interesting that one I have a 15 year old daughter and when she read that one for the first time she left the room for a minute, went outside, and then came back in. And I said, what were you doing, feeding the dogs? And she said, no, I was just out there measuring the wind. <laughs> Because it has this how-to measuring the wind part of it. And then the Dust Bowl, story of a hurricane in Galveston, Texas. So it really keeps the students. It's not like they read about the wind yeah. and then the wind and then the wind. It really takes them into different facets. So there's... So one of the things about building knowledge that's so interesting is you can say, well, you know, should first traders spend that much time just learning about the wind? But when you discover the depth of knowledge about any one topic, you realize there is that depth of knowledge about everything. So by trying to have like this idea that students just need to learn to read and then they can just Mm -hmm. Google what they want to know. If they've never learned the depth of what they can know about something, they also aren't necessarily going to dig into the depth of something yeah. they're even interested in. You know, Natalie Wexler's been writing a lot about this. She just had an article that surfaced this week in the Atlantic. Um, and she really talks about this whole issue. You know, like when we stick with discrete skills, instead of actually teaching history and science and content that build about the knowledge about the world, we're really Mm -hmm. making matters worse because children aren't learning that they can have all of this connected knowledge in their mind. It's not just random knowledge. It's connected and deep knowledge that builds a desire to learn more. 
Um, my dream would have been for kids to come to my kidney table excited about what we were going to read next instead of just me trying to get them excited about, you know, a new application yes. of phonics skill. <laughs> we're, and we're, we're actually really glad that you mentioned that by uh, Natalie Wexler, or the, mentioned Natalie Wexler. Um, we podcasted with her and hers will be coming out on the day that her book comes out on August 6th um, because we feel like she's also a disruptor in how we're moving forward, thinking about all of the things that you just mentioned. She is bringing it to light in, you know, national publications in a way that we're, we're hopeful that people will hear and, and listen to and, and bring attention to. So thanks for, for calling her out. I've added her also um, in the link and I'm, I'm Googling her most recent article. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a good one. <laughs> It reminds me too, I think it might, might've been in one of Natalie's articles at some point, but she talks about like the, the Velcro theory, right? That like all these little, all, all this knowledge is like little Velcro balls that continue to stick it for our students. So I, that's what it reminds me of when you talk about all these different parts of the wind, that they're all these little balls that they're collecting um, and they have something for it to stick to, you know, versus those books where it there's nothing for it to stick to. Like you're just continuing to let them stick together and building it, which is amazing. Yeah, that's yeah. a great way to describe it, Melissa. And when I think about, you know, teachers in the classroom, I know everybody's always worried about time. There's not enough time to do mm-hmm. when you think about when that knowledge is sticking, when there's connections between the knowledge, when students are in your small group, you don't have to explain how the wind works to explain you know, the Galveston hurricane, because they, they have some background knowledge of that already, or their, their content knowledge has been built. So I think when you read books around similar topics, you don't have to start from scratch each time. It's, it's you know, students that, you know, foundation is built up a little bit, you know, more each time. So I think that makes a difference too. Yep. And it makes a difference in their confidence and motivation, like you yep. guys have mentioned too. Yes. So I guess my question is, how can we access geodes if <laughs> if we are a school that is implementing um, wit and wisdom? How do we get geodes? Do we reach out? Who do we reach out to? Who do we let know that we want this to happen in our building, in our school, for our kids? What I would suggest is just go to the Great Minds website. Yep. You can put that in your note. Um, go to the website because there's a way that you can put in your basic information mm-hmm. and say that you're interested and also get access to looking at Library Cat and Illustrator at Work, two books that are online digitally that so you can actually Great. see for yourself. Um, those- Great. And I, I believe there's also a link um, to the webinar, the recorded webinar for. Geodes? Yeah. Yep. Right. Right. Yeah, that's great. Go on too. geodes. We yeah. can go to greatminds.org. Um, look, look at some sample geodes. Jump in on a pre-recorded webinar. Get more information. Um, and then I would love to hear. I would love for you each to leave us with um, your your best advice for implementing geodes. So we have pretend you're talking to a Baltimore teacher. Um, he or she just received their geodes. <laughs> Shipment. They're boxes and boxes. Yes. <laughs> They're so pumped up. They're holding these beautiful books that feel special in their hands. What, like, what is your best advice for, for that teacher if you were standing there talking to them? I, I can start there. I would say, you know, it's going to be a shift in your thinking and using the same text for all students, but ultimately, I think it'll it'll be more efficient and save time in the in terms of your planning rather than I know I had my teacher bag with mm-hmm. my ten different books <laughs> that I would lug back and forth every day <laughs> on the weekend I'd add more to it and you know my shoulder no wonder my shoulder still hurts but anyways like that I, <laughs> I'm lugging you know you don't you have a book or you know a couple books that maybe you're working on the week uh, but you can focus your energy and planning time on addressing, you know, the needs of the students in those groups. It's not about what's this book about? How am I going to teach the knowledge of this book? You're building that knowledge continuously and you don't have to necessarily as a teacher teach yourself, you know, what that book is about. So I think although it's different than using a level A, a level C, a level E book for various students, having one book and finding the different entry points, like we said, uh, for each of those groups, I think ultimately, you know, will help instruction in your planning time. I don't, I think we've heard from the field that teachers say, yeah, I can, it's, it's more efficient. I, 
it's a lot, it's the bridge, it's all coming together now. They're learning this in foundations, they've learned about the wind in wind wisdom, and now at my small group, we're just building on that. So we've heard really positive things from the field and from students. So I think we really, you know, want you to give it a try and what we've seen happening in classrooms is working. Great. I, we agree. Please try. <laughs> <laughs> Lorraine, any, uh, any thoughts for that teacher from you? Thank you, Emily. Sure. I think, I think one of the things that I would want to say is be sure that two things. One thing is sit down and read all 16 books and just mm -hmm. enjoy them and read the teaser and then the book and then the more section and think about what you learned and just enjoy them for the knowledge and for the entertainment value and like just the joy of reading. That's the first thing I would do. And then when I sat down with a group of students, really think to yourself, there's a beautiful, um, I can't remember the name of it, Emily, um, that illustration that shows like the varied ways that you can have students read a text, like the highest level of support is reading it out loud, then it's echo reading, then partner reading, then independent reading, and really thoughtfully consider what does this group yeah. of students need? What's the least level of support they need? Because sometimes these books are so interesting that teachers use their complex text strategy and they go right in reading the book out loud to the children every single time, even when it's an opportunity for the students to read those texts on their own. And I mean, there are going to be students that need it read aloud. We're not saying that all the students should dive in and just, you know, stumble through the text if that's where they are. But really think about your group and, you know, can they, you know, when you're doing a, a, a core ELA program like with Wisdom, you're doing a lot of read aloud and you can get into that, that idea in your mind that mm -hmm. you always need to yep. read it out loud to the students. Um, but I would just suggest allowing students to practice their skills. And that's why, that's how they, you know, employ the idea that phonics is worth learning. And in this particular situ situation, because it is so correlated to what they've learned, it's also worth using. Um, it's a good strategy for reading rather yeah, than trying to guess Yeah, that's a great point, Lorraine. I think the idea, yeah, students need to be reading at the kidney table, figure out as much time as possible, you know, let less of the teacher talks so students can be reading. Because uh, the idea, if not now, when? If they're not reading in the classroom with you, we don't know all the time at home if they're able to read, you know, as much or time, like there's so much stuff going on. But we know when they're with you in the classroom, that's the time they have to practice the reading and you can, as a teacher, be there to support it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to steal that line, Lorraine. What's the least amount of support they need to access this text on their own? That, <laughs> I'm stealing it. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> I, I already put it. I think that actually goes the whole way I up, agree. though. You know, like... <laughs> Yeah. It really, you know, sometimes we just take for granted that the students can't handle it. Even like when you think about a sixth grade classroom, when you're already into a novel, if the students are curious enough about the book, they will make themselves read beyond what maybe they even thought. I mean, just think about the whole yeah. Harry Potter phenomenon that happened when I was teaching fourth grade. And I had these students that were going to the library and getting these tiny books. Harry Potter came out and all of a sudden they're carrying around <laughs> these great big books and flying through them. Like yeah. how did that happen? You know? Because it was so interesting and engaging. I even stayed up till 3 a.m. to finish Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> As the teacher of those three. Yeah, I mean, I just think you're so right that when they want to learn because they're engaged, and that's what that's what geodes do. Um, you know, with this perfect merge of I don't want to say it's perfection, but I think it's darn near close. Um, this, this perfect merge of the, you know, the, the word study skills that they're learning and then the bridging of the content knowledge. It's just incredible. So thank you for taking the time to be here. Thank you for giving us your best advice. Um, we plan to quote you both heavily in the future. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And we are so excited for the implementation of the, um, geodes in Baltimore this year. We're just 
I'm sure we'll talk to all of you a lot this year about it. <laughs> well, we're excited to see it. And yeah, we look we forward to wait. it. And thanks, Melissa and Lori, for having this platform where we can talk and share ideas. And thanks to all your listeners out there. I know as a podcast lover myself, I'm often folding the laundry while doing so or something. So you know, <laughs> yes. shout out to all of you listeners who are folding your laundry for lunch or picking up your kids from soccer practice. Yeah. Doing what you're doing. Yeah. Or going for a run or shopping in Trader Joe's. All the things (laughs) I also like to do while podcasting, Emily. Yes. (laughs) To that end, we do want to take a minute and ask anyone who's listening out there to please leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening on because it does some insane things with the algorithm and it means that our podcast will pop up to the front of the suggested podcast so if you're listening please 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 give us a five-star review um if you don't want to give us a five-star review then maybe don't give a review at all because <laughs> we want to make sure that we we head right to the top so um we will take your feedback but like like we will take it directly via twitter or <laughs> or another platform um that doesn't impact our algorithm <laughs> thank you both for being on yeah thank you so much <laughs> we're so grateful yep. we really appreciate it thank you it was, it, it was very enjoyable.